Welcome to Real Estate Experts. Join us to democratize the secrets to real estate for everyone, everywhere. Thank you for being here. Let's see what our experts have to say today. Great. Well, hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Real Estate Experts. Today, I'm so excited. I'm joined by Rocky Lalvani. Rocky is a podcasting expert himself with over 75 under his belt. But what he does full time is he is the chief profitability officer for small business owners on a fractional basis. What that means is he's a certified profit first professional who helps business owners implement the profit first system. So excited to have Rocky here to talk to us about profit first, how to apply it in our business and how to apply it in our real estate business. Rocky, thank you so much for joining us. Elias, thank you so much for having me here today. Excited to join you. I appreciate it. So you're a huge fan of the profit first, you know, framework. You know, many of us uh, don't know what that is. You know, I, I just heard learned it from you. So why don't you uh, school us real quick? So a couple underlying things, and some of these things really shocked me. Turns out most business owners don't like the business of business, right? They mm. they love the part they they do. Most of your guys are in the real estate business. They all love the parts of real estate that they love. Nobody wants to deal with invoices and QuickBooks. They're not accountants. They don't want to be. And when you don't focus on the numbers, problems occur. So Profit First was written by Mike Michalowicz. And some of your listeners may have heard of Mike. Mike uh, is a serial entrepreneur. He, uh, he was the guy who actually did the forensic accounting of Enron. So their company did it. After that, he sold his company, walked away with lots of money, became an angel investor, and quickly lost it all, right? Just done to the point that they're repoing the cars and taking back the house. And he said, how could I think I was so smart and screw this up? And so he kind of went on a mission to figure out how do I deal with this and how do I make sure that this never happens again? And how do I help other business owners? So the first aha he had was the formula we have for profit is for accountants, right? It's gap accounting, which is generally accepted accounting principles. And so the formula we have is sales minus expenses equals profit. Well, where is profit? It's a leftover, right? It's something your accountant tells you at tax time. Mike said, this is absurd. We need an equation for entrepreneurs. So he said, let's do sales minus profit equals expenses. So we take our profit first and we constrain our expenses. And so it's just a mindset shift in how we look at things. One of the reasons this works so well is because of Parkinson's law. Now, most people haven't heard of Parkinson's law, but what Parkinson's law says is we will use up all the resources allocated to a budget. So when you come into a house and you say, okay, we're going to flip this house. And the question is, what's our budget and how long is it going to take? Say, oh, my budget's 60,000 and I've got 90 days. You will spend 60,000 and you will take 90 days, right? Because that's the expectation. Now, if you come in and say, hey, this is that TV show where they flip it in a week. Say, our budget's 40 grand and we're going to do it in seven days. You find a way to get it done, don't you? Because most of you guys and gals are very resourceful, but you've got to constrain, constrain yourself. And that's the big part of what this does. It creates that constraint. Now, people say, how am I supposed to go from 60 to 40 and from three months to seven days? You all heard of the Pareto principle, which is the 80-20 rule. 20% yeah. of what you do provides 80% of the results, which means 80% of what you do is mostly wasting time. So stop right. wasting time, constrain yourself, set your limits and go. And that's literally the, the underlying principles of what this is all about. I love that Rocky. Um, I, I really love this uh, different approach to it because uh, it really forces, especially small businesses, to make sure that they're uh, above water. Otherwise, they're kind of waiting until the end of the month to see, hey, am I profitable? Uh, and that's a, not a fun place to be in. 
I want to get your quick perspective on this about the constraints thing, because it kind of, to me, ties back into like having really good goals. Uh, but I'll, I'll just say this piece out and let me know your reaction. So Google, I don't know if they refer to it as Parkinson's or how uh, how they kind of came up to came up to this, but as one of the earliest like tech startups, they just set up like massive goals, you know, like quarter over quarter growth goals, year over year growth goals. And Google's method mentality was like, hey, let's aim for the stars. And even if we land on the moon, we win, you know, let's, if we get 75% of these goals, let's do it. And, and, you know, all the tech companies I've worked for, you know, they kind of do the same thing. We're going to set extremely high goals. We're going to give you, you know, little to no resources to achieve those goals comparatively. And, 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 uh, and I mean, we do it, you know, we hit the goals as a, as a crazy as it may feel like. Uh, and if we don't hit the goals, we come close and coming close takes us further than if we set smaller goals. And I try to apply this to my life, to my own business, in terms of like, I want to accomplish X, Y, Z, you know, set it audaciously high, do my best to get to it. And even if, and then have almost some detachment to if I don't achieve it, because I achieved still greater than had I set my goals lower. How does that fit into your world of profit first? So I think that's exactly it. I mean, you're essentially, you're taking Parkinson's law and you're just applying it, right? You told me we set high goals, right? We do it with minimal resources, right? So you're constraining yourself. And as you said, when you shoot for the stars, even if you miss, you get a lot further than you would have otherwise. The, but what most people do is they set lazy goals. They set, you know, we'll get to it. They don't have those, those tight things. So everyone gets lazy. I mean, you are the average of the five people around you. If yeah. you're the if you're the guy running, you know, the flip or whatever it is you're doing in real estate and you're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Then, you know, everyone around you is going to be like, uh, that guy said he needed it tomorrow. You said you had a week. I got to go over there tomorrow. And that's why your guy didn't show up in the morning because yeah. he went over to somebody who wants to get it done now. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I love that laziness piece. It brings me to a quote I heard from Brian Chesky, founder of Airbnb, and it was uh, businesses, they don't die from some external threat, they die from negligence. And and that's, you know, and, and profit first, I think is something that requires a great deal of discipline. I mean, uh, can you tell, tell talk about like some of, you know, the, you know, a does it require discipline from what you see? Like, are there some mindset changes you have to like, coach business owners to apply that? So what Profit First is, is it's a cash flow system, and it's a systematic cash flow system. So the way it works is money comes into the main account. We call this account the income account. So whenever you have money coming in, it goes into the income account. Now, most business owners don't look at their financials. They don't look at their P&L. They don't go into QuickBooks. They look at their bank balance. Do I have money? Do I not have money? Gotcha. So right now, our income account is going to tell you whether you have money coming in. As on a set and regular basis, and everyone creates their own rhythm for how they do this. So it might be weekly, it might be monthly, it might be twice a month, it might be, you know, when the flip is closed, and then we do our allocation, we take money and we put it where it belongs. So the first account is the profit account, we take our profit and we put it in the profit account. The next account is your pay account because half of you pay yourself last. You're the one doing all the work, taking all the risk. Why are you paying yourself last? Pay yourself first. So the next chunk goes into that account. The third account is the tax account because we all forget we have to pay taxes, right? And they don't withhold it at closing. Right. And so by Funding the tax account, when tax time comes, you're ready. So I had a guy, he's, he's in a totally different business. Mike is in the recruitment business. He had a blowout year, shot, you know, hit the moon. Mm -hmm. Tax time comes, the accountant's like three weeks late calling, finally calls him and says, I've been dreading this conversation. He's like, what's going on? She's like, you owe a lot in taxes. He goes, I know my sales were up last year. The problem is accountants don't keep up, right? They always base your taxes on the previous year. So if your numbers blow out and you don't have good conversations, you're in trouble. Yeah. He's like, so how much do I owe? And she's like, it's almost six figures. And he said, okay, I'll drop off checks. She's like, in the 20 plus years of doing this, nobody has ever said that to me. 
right? Mm -hmm. Usually the business owners are screaming. They're freaking out. Where am I supposed to find $100,000? How am I supposed to do this? Why didn't you tell me, right? This but, was- But Mike came prepared. He was like, yeah, I made increased sales, percentage of my sales I know is going to be taxed anyways. Let me put that money aside. Yeah, it's not your money. It's the government's and they will yeah. come take it. They'll freeze oh, yeah. all your accounts and blow up everything. Yeah, and, and we've got a relatively easier system, you know, in America than uh, some other countries. Um, uh, Rocky, I'd love to get into the, you know, into the real estate side, like the intersection. But yeah, yeah go ahead, hang on. Please. The last bit of money goes into your operating expenses, okay. and that's where you spend your operating. And 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 for folks that are listening, operating, you know, the way I interpret it is like, is the cost to fill your product, and is the cost to, you know, to deliver it to your customer, also the cost to acquire your customer. Mm -hmm. All of your normal routine business expenses are in the operating expenses. But we've constrained your operating expenses because we've already paid you, we've covered taxes, and we've taken profit. Yeah. So go on. You had a oh, question. That's yeah, I, lo I love that model. So let's take that model now of like constraining um, expenses and putting profits first. And, and I'd love to go through some exercises with you where we apply it to A, the flipper, and B, uh, the real estate agent that's investing in marketing, trying to acquire customers or sell listings. Okay. And we should probably also do it on the... Um the rental market too. Oh yeah, of course. Yeah, definitely. So let's uh, kick it off. We got lots to talk about. What about so, flippers? With the flipper, I think what you almost want to do is start with a separate account. Okay. And this is our funding account. So we, we have a project. We know the purchase price. We know the budget. If you start with that funding account, you will constantly watch it go down, all right? And so every time you see it go mm -hmm. down, you start to go, whoa, 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 how are we doing? It yeah. gives you that little bit of a gut check. It shows you how much is left on your project. And you can look at your flip and go, okay, eh, is this, you know, how's this looking towards that? So yeah. the flip is usually, it's a much longer term deal. And so it's a little bit harder to, to always look at that. Once you sell your flip, now you come back and you say, okay, I'm selling my flip. You get a whole big paycheck one day. You take your profit, right? Because your deal was supposed to have profit. So you take your profit and you remove it from your company. Yeah. And then you can decide how you want to reinvest that in the future, right? But you're physically taking oh, yeah. it out and removing it. And then you're going to make an intentional decision about how to redeploy it. You're going to, now, usually flippers don't have paychecks, so you may not be using your uh, pay account. Usually they take it all as profit. If you're paying yourself a salary and that's the way your operation goes, then figure out the percentage of each deal that goes towards your salary and you put that in there. Of course, we know we have a massive profit, so you want to put the money in the tax account to be ready for tax time. And then whatever's left, you can put in your operating account and that becomes your fund to fund the next deal. Awesome. I, I love that. That makes total sense to me. One question though, um, these numbers, do they need to break it down before they buy the home, before they invest in that project in terms of like knowing how, what profit they need to take away in order for that deal to work out? Yeah, you should. When, I, when we flip houses, we know what our profit number is up front. Yeah. We build it into our deal. So we'll sit down, we'll look at the purchase. So here's what we do. We look at, we go into a, a flip. Okay, what's it going to cost me to bring this house to market? Okay, it's going to cost me, let's say $30,000. Okay, 30000 to come to market. 20000 is my profit, right? Then... I look at what's my selling price. So let's say that when I sell this house, uh, it's going to be 150,000. The first thing we do is we knock that down by 10%. So I know I have 135 is my net selling price. I do that because I have to pay the realtor. Mm -hmm. We have local transfer taxes. The buyer always wants some money. And then always there's invariably something that needs to get fixed at the last second. So you put so, yourself a 10% buffer. So you we put the 10% buffer on the top line and we put buffers on every single line. Yeah. Just so 
once you do that and you subtract out all your costs, now it tells you what you can afford to pay for the house. Now, whatever mm -hmm. you can get below that, great, but you don't want to go above that number. You see, I, I love that, Rocky, because I've had, you know, similar conversations, you know, wide variety of investors, some who've made tons of money, who, you know, are doing, you know, you know, 80 flips a month, you know, some that are afraid to get back into the industry because they messed up and they lost a ton of money. And, the, and, and that piece that you said there was the deciding factor. It was, do you know how much you can afford to spend on the home before you buy the home? Because you have to rehab it, get it to market, make a profit. And, uh, and, and somebody told me this quote, it was, you make money when you buy the home, mm -hmm. not when you sell the home. Mm -mm. You can't screw up a wrong purchase. Like you buy it wrong, you're done. Yeah. I don't care what you do. Yeah. You're just chasing your tail at that point and it's going to be impossible. So Rocky. we run the numbers up front always and spreadsheet them out and keep track of it at the end to say, did that meet expectations? And we also put in a miscellaneous buffer mm -hmm. because there's all that little stuff that you forget about. Yeah. And I mean, I mean, shoot, maybe you want to buy bagels and coffee for the workers, you know, it, it's not even that it's sometimes you forget. Oh, yeah, we have to mow the lawn 10 times and I got to pay the guy to mow the lawn. Oh, what the dumpster? We forgot the dumpster, right? Mistakes happen. It's all the little, little stuff that you don't yeah. see in the big picture that, you know, gets added up at the end. The, so, so yeah, that, 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 you know, sounds way more expensive than my example of bagels and coffee. <laughs> um, all right. Yeah. Let's keep it moving. Thank you so much for breaking that down on the flipper stuff. Anything else though, that's really important before we move on to the agent side? No, I think run your numbers is the key. And then most real estate investors have a tendency to be optimistic. Mm. I want you to be pessimistic. Like yeah. for each line item, subtract 10%. Right. Oh, it's going to cost me five grand to put in heat. Well, let's make it fifty five hundred. Right? right. Yeah. The roof might need replaced. Well, let's put it in the deal. Whether or not you do it is another story. Let's prepare for the worst and let's put it in there. And we like we just constantly put extra multipliers in so that we keep creating more and more space. And again, Parkinson's law, we're pressured to get the house at a lower cost. Yeah. And then if you find yourself, you might find yourself with not having to tap into all your buffers and that kind of fuels back to profit. That's all profit. Yeah. That's lovely. Well, and everything that can go wrong will go wrong. So. Right. Yeah. Especially with the flip. Um, not something that I'm going to be running into personally, but uh, definitely want to share all of this information for everybody that's out there considering it. Um, the other thing now is the, the real estate agent side. I'd love to talk to you about this piece because I see agents, you know, you know, from the solo agent to the team lead, to the broker, right. Or to the big team. Um, and there's a lot of expenses, you know, if you're buying leads that could be thousands of dollars a month, you know, you're getting yard signs, photography, you know, the 3d, uh, listings, the drone, like driving all around, spending all of your time, you know, it could be very cost heavy. And, and, and there's a reason why 80% of agents aren't successful. And so I love to, you know, pick your brain there in terms of what you think uh, helps an agent be profitable from day one so that they can be part of that top 20%. So I think the key here, this is more of a standard profit first, um, client and it, it's a more standard routine. So the one thing with real estate agents is your money goes like this, right? You get big chunks in irregular times. So what we do is we set up an extra account called a drip account. And we do that so that when you have lean months, you're not starving for cash. So first thing that comes in, your money comes into your income account, just like normal. We set our percentages for profit. In this case, as a real estate agent, you probably want to have a pay amount. Now, your pay amount might not doesn't necessarily have to be a you know, you know a paycheck every two weeks, but what you want to set your pay account is is how much do you need to live life, right? Because you've got your own mortgage or rent, your your expenses for the kids. How much do you need to make each month? 
So yeah. that's what we set as our pay account percentage. Um, you know your tax percentage, so we still have our tax percentage. And then all of those costs that you talked about go into OPEX. But here's where we might do it a little bit different. What we might do is we're going to set a base number, which will cover all of those things on a normal month. So let's say if we bring in 20000 each month, it covers your pay, it covers all your expenses, and everything is good. If you have a month with $30,000, right, what you want to do is immediately take the $10,000 and put it in that drip account and then do your allocations like you'd normally do. And what happens is if the next month you have a $15,000 month when you're like, what am I supposed to do now? I don't have enough money to pay myself. So now you can go into your drip account and take 5,000 out and allocate it to all your expenses. The next co comes out, it's blowout month, right? It's, it's June, you got 50 grand. We're gonna do the same thing again. We're gonna put $30,000 aside and we're gonna, we're gonna live on our, our 20 like we expect to. And so that really flattens out the up and down that, that happen over time. But you've gotta figure out how much do you need to cover your home expenses? What's your profit percentage? your tax percentage, and then your operating expenses. And again, force yourself to, to spend as little as possible in your operating side. And then yeah, set your big months aside. That's a, that's definitely new to me in terms of a tip for agents. Uh, I've not heard any agent do this, um, you know, and I've seen the uh, feast or famine cycle mm -hmm. help agents celebrate and also help agents, you know, be in a mode of desperation or just leave real estate altogether. Um, this will fix feast or famine once you get your sales moving. Yeah. But if you don't have any sales for months on end, then it's not going to work. Yeah. And if you don't have sales for month on end, then what you need to do is stop spending. So here's where we get mad at real estate agents. Yeah, tell me. They spend inappropriately. Okay. Also. So you do have to do certain things, right? You, if you've got a house for sale and you don't have good pictures, that's a problem. Right. Don't skimp on the pictures, right? Because if you don't have good web marketing, that is a problem. Um, so sometimes they won't spend on, on some of those types of things that are important to the sale. If it's going to help you drive that sale, you're going to need to put a little bit of money out. And you, when you go into this business, you've got to figure out how you're going to do that. Maybe it's a spouse is covering you. Maybe you've got, you've, saved up for a few years, or maybe you've got a day job and you're doing this on the side. That's fine. But understand it's going to take time for your real estate business to take off. It takes a couple of years. It takes time to build relationships, it takes time to build referrals. Um, and I think the other thing they don't always do is they don't pay for help. So having a closing agent to handle the paperwork for you. Okay, it's 350 bucks or whatever you pay, but it, it frees you up to go get another sale because yeah. another sale is going to put a lot more money in your pocket than you wasting all this time doing stuff you hate doing. Yeah, I think that's a really great point that you touch on. Um, and and I wonder how like we connect the dots to profitability first, uh, you know, more, you know, in a straightforward way. And what I'm talking about is the value of time and the value of time for the agent. And the agent has all of these different tasks and some of them you can probably get done at four or five bucks an hour, you know, <laughs> if you really think about it. And some of them will make you $5,000 an hour. Um, and so, you know, I've definitely seen that. And, you know, in uh, my uh, earlier years as an entrepreneur, I've also been, you know, kind of doing too much of everything just because, <laughs> and then realizing, oh man, these like repeatable tasks are sucking my time and, and I could be on a sales call or I could be doing something way more impactful for my business. And so, yeah, no, please. The real estate point. game is a numbers game. It's you, it's dialing and emailing and following up. And yeah. if you're a new real estate agent, I highly recommend this book. It's the seven called, levels of communication by Michael Mayer. Yep. Dope. This is how to go from relationships to referrals. It is all around real estate. And spend a couple bucks, learn how to build your business. Yeah, get 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 your skin in the game. 
I was talking to another agent the other day and he was uh, telling me about his investments in leads. And I, and I was proud of him because he was telling me he was spending about two to $300 per lead, you know? Uh, so he's getting quality leads from these different vendors, as opposed to spending a hundred dollars for a list of a thousand leads that now you're going to waste all your time calling through that won't do anything good for you. So you, you have to run your math. If you're paying $200 or 250 a lead, that's perfectly fine. How many leads to a sale? right? If you're paying for 10 leads, that's $2,500. And your commission on the house is 3000 because that's your cut of it. Well, we might want to do something different. Right. No, so that sure. tells me either you've got bad leads or you're not good at selling. Yeah. I think he told me his numbers were uh, five leads to convert one. Uh, and then he was building his team at the same time. So maybe not perfect and also trying to go through the growing pains of bringing on new agents to close them. Um, but it did sound like he was thinking about that, uh, cust that uh, customer acquisition cost formula uh, when, when we were talking about it. And so that is what the book is about. The book is about how do you get referrals that are free? Yeah. Because that, that's dramatic. Like that, That's the biggest thing. You see that, that with Uber, with Lyft, uh, even with Tesla, you know, the company I work for, you know, every, every company, your referral leads cost you $0 for customer acquisition. What, um, I know that's not, this isn't the main point and we can move to, to the next seg segment, but what would you say, you know, in your experience across all business as the, you know, key to keeping your customers happy, to having that high net promoter score, high satisfaction score, because to me, that's the key to having referrals. What is, uh, how do you do that? Simply? So the biggest problem I see with people is they don't call people back. I get yeah. these postcards in the mail all the time from people looking to buy my houses. Sometimes I email or I call them. And the only reason I call them is not because I want to sell my house. I call them because I'm like, I want to, I want your deal supply. Like, are you actually doing these? Or are you wholesaling? Cause you're for wholesaling. I'm I'd like to be part of it. Yeah. Um, so I'll call them and say, Hey, I got your postcard. Love to hear from you. Uh, let's chat. And then no. radio silence. Why did you spend all that money on promotion and not yeah. pick up the phone? Yeah. It amazes me how often that happens. Um, so, and here's the thing in the real estate business. The secret of the real estate business is the first realtor to call the customer usually gets the deal. So you've got to lead. be like this. And if you can't be like this, then that's where you pay somebody. Mm -hmm. One of these call centers, if nothing more to say, hey, you know, let's set a time to meet. Here we go. We're going to move forward. So right. you've got to be fast in this game. So I think that's really the big thing. Listen, listen to what people are telling you. They have their dream house. People say, I need a house with four bedrooms and you show them a house with three bedrooms. You're wasting their time, right? I want a house with X, Y, Z. Then if you spend the time to understand what they want, maybe even show them some different properties to get their feedback and see what they say before you, you start dragging them all over the place and spending hours showing them a house. If you take the time to understand their needs and listen and have a systematic way of doing that, it becomes much, much easier. Yeah, I, I totally, uh, I totally agree with that. And uh, yeah, please. The other thing is people don't have vision. Right. They can't walk into a house. I don't like blue. OK, that's two cans of paint. Suck it up. Right. Let's look at the bigger picture. Yeah. How does this you know, you have to show them how they can fit into that right. house. It's, it's, it's sales, you know, it's all about the transformation, showing them, you know, the better life that can be attained when you do this. Um, I think there's a great reckoning that's happening right now in real estate, and it has to do with exactly how client, how clients are treated by their agents. Um, and you will see, you know, I think we'll continue to see the better agents rise to the top because, you know, you know, I've had my experiences where I felt like I was being rushed by agents. I was being shown areas I didn't want to see, you know, and I was like, 
it's exactly the experience you're telling me. I was like, this isn't what I wanted. And I had to go with another agent, you know, that would actually listen to me and, and it's dumbfounding because they want the commission, but um, something's wrong with how their motivation is wired because they want the commission so bad that they're like acting against their own interest by trying to pressure the client. Um, and I think because of the internet and clients being able to have access to so much information on their own today, they don't need the agent that much, right? Uh, and so they're looking for an agent that could, you know, be uh, like provide amazing customer service, like provide an excellent experience, not a rushed experience. Correct. That's very, very true. Let's uh, let's dive in. You said the next section, this is a really great one. Landlords, it's not something that I've actually spoken a lot about yet. So I'd love to get into it. Um, you know, some complicated numbers or it's not complicated, but uh, I haven't, uh, uh, like I said, dived into them myself. So I'm excited to hear about it. So when you buy a rental property, right? You say, okay, I'm going to buy this house. It's $100,000, right? And I'm going to rent it out for $1,000 a month. That's my goal. Mm -hmm. And you say, okay, I have a 5% vacancy factor built in. And then I have a 5% a, a long-term um, capital improvement built in because I at some point I have to replace the roof. I have to replace the heat. Uh, you might have to replace the driveway. And then maybe you have your routine normal maintenance for the year. So maybe that's 3%. Okay. Yeah. And then of course you have your, your mortgage payment with the taxes and the insurance and all of that stuff built in. Most people get the rent check, right? They pay the mortgage and then they spend the rest of the money. And then when the roof leaks, they got no money to fix the roof. And then they're fighting with the tenant. Can you wait another three weeks? And then the tenants like uh, it, the roof's now, you know, the, the house has got mold. I'm moving out. Screw you. You didn't fix it. Now you're stuck. You got no rent. No one's moving in and now you're desperate. And that's where you get the bad client. And that's where you get the bad client. So here's the deal. When the rent comes in, if you have a 5% vacancy, then take 5% of the rent, 50 bucks, put it in a vacancy account, right? If you've got the long-term, take the money, put it in an account earmarked for yeah. what it is. Put it in the account for your, your, your repairs. And so when the time comes to make a repair, you're like, okay, the roof broke. I hate this. I've got the money. Call the roofer. Let's get it done. Right. If this is interesting, it's a little bit different because it sounds like what folks are doing is they're taking all of the money after mortgage is paid and counting that as profits. Mm -hmm. And there's like all these shadow expenses. So those profits, it's almost like borrowing from themselves. Yeah. Um, and they, they, they say silly things like, well, I didn't expect the roof to go. Right. Really? It was yeah. 25 years old. <laughs> I was talking to another real estate investor who was, uh, you know, good amount of good portfolio, international portfolio. And, uh, and he was sharing with me, you know, how he invests and he invests in such a way that he's not dependent on the rent to pay the mortgage. And it seems so simple. But, you know, I've talked to a lot of folks who, you know, yeah, I've talked to at least two folks who uh, have over leveraged themselves in the last housing bubble, you know, by mm -hmm. essentially just buying home after home and, and, then, and then not being able to pay the mortgage on their own and then losing everything. Um, yeah, and I that think happens all the time. That's kind of what's about to happen now if the foreclosure start going into effect nationwide. You know, there's probably a lot of folks that own Airbnbs, rental properties, whose customers are coming or tenants aren't paying. And because, you know, they never built even a three month runway, now they're really screwed at nine, 10 months in. And that happens, you have to, so I had, I had that happen with a couple of my houses and the one house, uh, the tenant stopped paying. And then he trashed it. Mm. So it literally was 14, 15 months of no rent. Plus well, repairs. Yeah, well, once he kicked him out and then 
doing all the repairs. Yeah, plus repairs. Oh, God, yeah, yes. And as a matter of fact, when we were done with the project, it was so nice. We're like, we can't put a tenant in here. We'll never get enough rent to make it worthwhile. We sold the property. Yeah. Um, just because that was the appropriate thing to do at that time for what it was. And we made a profit, but I still had to carry all of that stuff. And I was able to do it because I have reserve accounts. Right. You and, don't and, and, want and to if, live at the margin. It's and, and and I think there's something that we just uncovered that you just uncovered here. I want to make sure shine light on it. And that is because you had the money to hold on to your property for the 15, 20 months, however long it took. And when you're able to sell your property, Am I right to say that you made all that money back, or at least it was able to be, those coffers are able to be filled back up as opposed to somebody who would have lost their property? Oh yeah, I, I made it all back. Like I made yeah. a profit overall yeah. on the entire thing. I got all my money back that I didn't. So here's the thing. I, I did have a guy make me an offer. I ended up selling the house for through, probably close to three times what his offer was. Oh, wow. Because he was going to take it in as his condition. Oh, and then you went and repaired it? I repaired it. I think our repair costs were probably about 70. So even if we had subtracted that out, I still made an extra probably 100 and uh, 130, 140. Like, yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's who I hear this quote a lot in business and it's really resounding to me right now. And that is who can hold their breath the longest underwater um, <laughs> because you made that money back. And I, and I, and I'm just remembering the other conversation I had where this guy had two properties and he, uh, he walked away from them zombie foreclosure or whatever it's called. Right. And it's like, mm -hmm. you didn't have the wherewithal to hold the property for one or two years to get out of this depression. It's not like, depression and the world and and it's going to be like this forever you know we'll come out of it um and so i was just you know really shocked to hear you know that that happens it happens that's how we get our properties right right because that's where the deals come that's where you find the opportunity yeah. when somebody else screws up that's where your opportunity comes is from their mistake unfortunately and it i didn't cause their mistake and i'm teaching them how not to make it if you're going to make it, I'm going to profit. Yeah. Yeah, I know. That totally makes sense. And if you make a mistake, then somebody's going to profit off of that too. And then, mm -hmm. so that's a, that's the, you know, business is a sport. Like, you know, that's the reality of it. You can't, and I made him, I made a mistake with my rental, but I yeah. was able to correct my mistake. And because I was able to last it out, I was able to recover all my money plus. Rocky, I really appreciate it, man. Thank you for all the insights and taking the profitability first framework and applying it to these real estate business models. I'd love to learn more about you, share with the audience as well. Um, I understand, you know, your fellow immigrant as well came to America. Um, tell us, you know, how you got into, you know, take us from the beginning and tell us how you found passion and profits. So, I am an immigrant. Uh, when my parents came here, they essentially started over in life for their second time with $25. And so clearly we were on the wrong side of the tracks back then. But very quickly, they started to, to move up the tracks and, and do a little bit better. And they also had a lot of friends that had come over at the same time. So the parents would all get together and they would talk about money. And they would talk about real estate. And they would talk about how much they were making and spending. And so we always got the opportunity to hear the stories. So money was not a taboo subject. The mm -hmm. expectation was always that you will succeed. The expectation is, you know, there is plenty of, of opportunity out there. You have to go find your own opportunity. And so as a kid, I just, I saw people who had already succeeded and had a lot of money. And I'm like, I want to be wealthy. And so I kind of said, you know, what are the principles and how do I go about doing this? And I also was involved in real estate because as a kid, you know, if we wanted to, to have a nicer house, well, we did it ourselves. Like I learned how to tile, how to do electric, how to do sheetrock, how to replace the roof and do all of these types of things. So I always kind of had the real estate bent in me. And then when I was in college, I had a real estate license. Um, 
And then I kind of stepped away from it all. And that was my biggest mistake was stepping away. I, you know, you get distracted with a decent job that pays well. You, you get a little um, uh, consistency, like stability. Uh, you get stability. stability. Like, yeah. So I think what it is, is, is good is the enemy of great. Mm-hmm. Because if things are pretty good, you don't fuss, right? There's right. no push there. And so I had a really good life, um, built wealth, enjoyed life. And then probably about eight, nine years ago, it was like, well, okay, I've done this, but this isn't thrilling. I don't enjoy it. I don't hate it. What if I wanted to create my own ultimate life? What would it look like? What would I want to do? And I've always wanted to be in the money space. The problem is when I looked at what all the financial advisors do, they're not money people. They're salespeople. They don't actually help to make you rich. They help to make themselves rich. So I could never get involved in that. And then I came across financial coaching. I actually went and spent time with Dave Ramsey's group, learned their systems, realized I didn't want to hang around broke people. Um, so then I started working with people who were making six figures, but still struggling with money. They just spend too much lifestyle inflation back to Parkinson's law. They didn't constrain themselves. And then I came across this thing. I started to realize that business owners weren't looking at their business. And I'm like, wait, I assume business owners understood the business of business but they didn't. What they did is they knew what they loved and they started a business around it and they were ignoring their financials. And I was like, okay, perfect match, right? Business owners are willing to spend money to fix problems. People aren't always as willing to spend money. If you can take a business owner and make them highly profitable, they'll more than happy to give you a percentage of that profit. And so that was the perfect thing. And then I was introduced to Mike and Profit first, and I was like, oh, this is the way I've been living my whole life. This is what I do. Um, then the question is now, do I go create my own systems and market it, or do I just partner with Mike and his systems, and I can hit the ground running? And I said, let's just partner with Mike and his systems. It's 10 times easier. All the things that I would have had to do were the things I hated to do. So it was a perfect uh, combination. And then stuff at work got bland. I'm like, all right, screw it. I'm out of here. It was the impetuous to say, let's roll. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And took off, started the business. And it's been a blast. And I, I've been having a lot of fun helping people and helping them become more profitable. And, and, in, and, but it's not just about money. Too many of these guys are all running after money, 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 money. I want to live life right? You want to enjoy things. You want to have that, that harmony in your life. Nobody wants to live a, a life full of um, constant emergencies, you know, constant phone calls of problems where you can't even go on vacation because if you go on vacation, everything starts blowing up. That's not the life I want to live. I want to live a life where I have the freedom to do what I want, to work with I, who I want, and to have the kind of real estate properties and tenants that respectful of me and I'm very respectful of them. We create yeah. great opportunities for both of us. Amen, Rocky. It's definitely the law of attraction. I'm glad mm-hmm. to hear that you're attracting the right people into your life and into your business um, and, and making those win-win uh, scenarios happen. Curious if you don't mind, like uh, what, was, uh, what, what, were you, what was your career before you got into uh, Profit First? I was sales in okay. uh, the medical industry. So okay. calling on lots of doctors who yep. spend more than they make. <laughs> you know, everyone thinks, oh, they're a doctor. They're supposed to be rich. But, you know, these yeah. days you don't get out of medical school till your early 30s. Right. So you're way behind massive debt. And the first thing they do when they get out is they buy the BMW and the big house. I'm like, time out, dude. Yeah. Slow yeah. down. I got a couple comments there. You know, I was a pre-med student. I've interned for tons of doctors uh, and um, remember sitting with this one doctor and uh, he was, you know, late after the shift in the conference room, just surrounded by papers. And he's like, Elias, they didn't teach me business in medical school. I didn't get my MBA. Now I'm managing this whole clinic, you know, almost, you know, out of like not knowing what he was doing. 
and 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 I, you know, this is going a little bit off topic, but like since we're on this note, might as well bring it up. I don't think I've mentioned this to anybody, really. I just and it's just crazy, man. So let let me just walk you through this rabbit hole real quickly regarding medical school and doctors, and you know, being thirty five years old when you're finally allowed to practice medicine. I feel like there's a one, uh, like a lot of hazing. You know, there's like, you know, me being pre-med, you know, get hazed by medical students, by the professors, you know, it's part of the process. And there's a lot of rumors of like more as the hazing gets intensified, you know, the 30 hour shifts, you have to work in the hospital and, and stuff like that. And so I wonder, like, has this hazing culture come at a cost to healthcare because we're making it so hard for people to get into healthcare and then we're playing with the supply and demand of healthcare, which is why healthcare becomes so inevitably expensive. There's this like crazy loop. So my point is like, do you think we should make it a lot easier for people to become doctors uh, so that we could like kind of level out supply and demand in, in the you know medical industry or any other reactions you've got from that? Yes, we should make it easier is not the right word. Yeah less uh friction maybe more efficient yeah, yeah more I'm, efficient not a 20-year thing but like can it you have more to efficient? take you have to take the arrogance out of it yeah oh yeah so that's There's where too much hazing. of it yeah that's where your hazing comes from the second thing is doctors don't make you healthy okay doctors are there when you are sick, okay, that's wonderful, but who's keeping you healthy? Yeah. And that's the problem. You have a car, you take it in and you get an oil change, right? You maintain your car. People aren't maintaining themselves. That's the problem. You want to fix healthcare? Start with the first thing. What happens if you put the wrong fuel in your car? What yeah, you bust up the engine. That's it. You bust up the engine. It's done. Every day in this country, people are putting the wrong fuel in their body. They're yeah. eating crap out of boxes that's processed, that's chemical ridden. Like, you got to change the way you fuel your body. And if you let a car sit there for 10 years and you don't drive it, it's going to be rusty, right? Mm -hmm. Well, most people are sitting on the couch watching TV, filling their body with junk, and they wonder why they're not healthy. You wonder why we have cardiovascular problems. You wonder why we have all these other problems. So I think they need to fix, people need to fix themselves. The second thing that nobody talks about, the number of medical mistakes in this country is through the roof. It kills more people than you can imagine. Because the medical industry does not have a system like the airline industry does of checklists and processes and procedures. When something goes wrong, they cover it up. They don't actually go back and say, how do we fix this? Yeah. And they're not paid to keep you healthy. They're not paid. Like they tell you diet and exercise and you all go la, 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 la. Um, we have to fix ourselves. The medical industry needs to fix itself as well. And it's not designed, it's got the wrong end in mind. And if you, yeah. medicine, everyone thinks medicine is great. You, more often than not, you're probably healthier staying out of a hospital than going into one. Oh, man. And the amount of errors that go on in hospitals is beyond comprehension. Yeah, I don't want to scare people too much, you know, with uh, <laughs> with distrust of the system. But I uh, I agree that uh, you know there's a lot of room for change, a lot mm -hmm. of room for change to make it more efficient. And and I think you hit on the nail with the arrogance piece. And that arrogance is what resists the change, right? Mm -hmm. And and you know, nobody is safe from technology or capitalism. You know, everything I think will eventually get disrupted in one way or another. Um, I just hope that it works. We heard about the doctor who said, hey, we should wash our hands. They threw him in an insane asylum and he died. How the Chinese doctor? Us? I can't. I don't think he was Chinese. Maybe he was. I forget his name. But he's like, um, you have to wash your hands. And everyone yeah. called him crazy. Yeah, I mean, 
I, I do think, and I agree, like uh, life does become simple if you can just get back to living simply, which is, you know, simple fuels, taking care of your body, working out. One thing I really like about you, Rocky, and talking about talking to you uh, is, is the, uh, there's an underlying theme of discipline. It takes discipline to be profit first. It takes discipline to do these things. Uh, so I really appreciate that. And is that something you'd uh, attribute to your culture, to your family, your upgrading? What would you say it comes from? It's my personality style. Yeah. So I'm an INTJ. INTJs are systems people. Like mm -hmm. whenever you bring me a problem, I'm like, there's a spreadsheet and a system for that. Yeah. Like even our grocery list is on a spreadsheet and it's on a spreadsheet in the order of the store. So, you know, it sits on the fridge when, when you, things run out, you just mark up the sheet. When it's time to go to the store, we grab the sheet. Now I'm not getting distracted by all this stuff over here. I'm like, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Follow the aisles, go down the, the thing, and I can be in and out of the grocery store. I don't forget anything. Mm -hmm. I'm not going forward and backward 50 times. Yeah. I'm, I'm done, and we have what we need, and we're not tempted by things that we shouldn't have. And so, and you can do that in every part of life. Create systems and implement them, you know, create a morning routine system. So yeah. when I go to the gym, I don't think about what exercise I'm going to do. I open up my five by five at app, you know, Mondays is this Fridays is that Wednesdays is this it's got a timer and it keeps me on schedule and keeps me moving. I see half these guys staring at their phone for mm -hmm. five minutes. I'm like, dude, it's not a couch. It's a bench. Yeah, lift. yeah, yeah, for sure. That's so funny, man. Rocky, thank you so much for this really amazing conversation. Any last uh, words? How can people get in touch with you and work with you? So if people would like to find me, hear more of these stories, the Profit Answer Man podcast is where I share the Profit First story. And then once you've got your money figured out, I have another podcast called Richer Soul, which is Life Beyond Money. Once you've got that, how do you build your ultimate life of harmony? And both of those can be found on those websites. So profitcomesfirst.com is the main hub. And email me. I do respond to emails. If you want to book a time on my calendar, do that. We'll chat. Rocky, I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for tuning in. I have tremendous gratitude for our guests and you listening now for joining our mission of democratizing real estate education around the world. If you want to learn more from our experts, our mission, and get involved, then please visit realestateexperts.org to get started. Who knows, you might even be a guest on a future episode.